0: Do you also have a really hard time right now? A hard time with finding space, mental, emotional space to have fun, to just enjoy life, to, to have pleasure. Does it feel much more that this is a time of stress, anxiety, or maybe anger and fighting and trying just to keep the head down or above water and moving forward? Hi, this is Dr. Friedman, and you're watching Empowerment Solutions. Do you struggle with anxiety, stress, low self-esteem, or a general sense of powerlessness? Well, on this podcast, me and my expert guests share with you tools, tips, and strategies on how to overcome these struggles using the power of your conscious and subconscious mind so that you can live with greater joy, peace, and empowered authenticity. Mike, it's so nice to have you and empowerment solutions. And uh, I like to, you know, just jump right into it, because I read about your journey to being really interested in fun, coming from a not so fun place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed like you were actually a little down with yourself in life. And then you started to reshape how you wanted to approach also fun. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So um, sort of the beginning of the origin story was uh, to kind of, you know, condense it. um, I got early mentorship through an amazing psychologist by the name of Michael Gervais. He's now pretty well known for his mindfulness training, especially here in the States. He He became the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. But I got, him, I got access to him when he was still getting his clinical hours. And so it was at a time um, where I was really trying to develop um, concepts of peak performance. I was in the midst of a couple of entrepreneurial endeavors. And so um, my foray into psychology was really how can we use it um, to better ourselves. And during that time, um, about uh, 2005-ish, uh Seglman had made cheek sent me high's work on flow popular especially here in the states he had a book come out called um authentic happiness and he started he started something him and his colleagues started something called the international positive psychology association which i got invited to be a charter member of and so um since that time had really drank from the cup of positive psych research right and used a lot of those tools for my own betterment um and uh also have always been kind of a quantified self geek. So, uh, you know, would track like what was working self-experimentation and things of that nature. And up until 2016, um, really had been a zealot of, uh, you know, trying to optimize happiness the best that you can. Um, and as you alluded, uh, I had this kind of trifecta of unfortunate events happen in that year. I lost my younger brother quite suddenly to a pulmonary embolism. Um, I, have a a slant towards anxiety and how I mitigate that is um, endurance sport and found out um, the two aren't correlated at all, but um, found out a couple months after my brother's death that I um, had at some point uh, injury that I didn't know about and had um, developed advanced osteoarthritis and needed hip replacement. So I wasn't going to be able to run again. So this lifelong way of mitigating anxiety was sort of taken away from me. Um, And then uh, this isn't necessarily bad, you know, misfortune, but my wife got an amazing opportunity that's brought us to North Carolina, but we were living in California and had been um, throughout our marriage. And so uh, that meant uprooting, you know, from our support network, from family and friends, which are, you know, a great way to sort of mitigate stress when it happens. And so I had these two unfortunate events and, and I didn't have my network available. And so I kept trying to use these tools that have been effective for over a decade you know, to make myself happy. Um, And I found that the more I chased happiness by the tail, the more miserable I was becoming. And being a a good researcher, I wanted to understand why, right? And through some serendipity um, and and mainly through social psychology, not necessarily clinical psychology, there was this emerging understanding that folks that not necessarily value happiness, because it's fine to value happiness as a construct, but folks that are overly concerned with happiness, especially their own happiness tend to be less happy. In fact, it quite often, um, you know, has a strong correlation to really, uh, you know, significant mental illness like bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder. And so why that is, you know, again, it's a correlation, not a causation, but it's clear that people that perseverate on why they're not where they want to be make themselves miserable. And so, I was doing that, you know. Unbeknownst to me, the more I tried to use these tools and um, and pick them apart of why they weren't working and why I wasn't unhappy, ultimately that was bleeding into my identity as being an unhappy person and making me more miserable. So if these tools were no longer effective, um, you know, what was there? And so I started digging in and realized, um, especially from you know my previous research in organizational psychology, this idea that autonomy is a really useful tool to bring back um, strong mental well-being, right? And so what could I do to sort of build my breadth of emotional response with still identifying as unhappy being an appropriate response to my brother passing away? And I found that anyone can still bring in joy and delight into their life and still identify with negative emotion, right? You can still have these experiences of what what we call in clinical psychology, positive valence, um, and still identify with the malaise or sort of the melancholy that's happening in your life, if that's an appropriate response at that time. And so there are two things to pick apart here, right? And, you know, they're foundational with cognitive behavioral therapy. We know that introspection tends to be what either creates downward spirals or upward spirals, right? And so, If we're perseverating consistently on why we're not happy, but not taking action, ultimately those thoughts have this weight that sort of drags us down over time, right? It bleeds into our identity. We have uh, less vitality to do things that could potentially lead to our betterment. Where if, despite our emotional state, we realize that we have some wherewithal, and this is, again, I always want to qualify, there's some people with a biological predisposition to depression where this might not work, right? If you're, you know, in the throes of major fibromyalgia or, you know, um, treatment resistant depression, it's not like you can just will yourself out of those. So I don't want to make, you know, like bold statements that fun is going to get you out of a, a true clinical condition, right? But if you're really just in a state of, you know, like myself, where Um, yeah, you know, the period of time sucks, but I still want to go out and and feel some uh, pleasurable aspects of what life has to offer and and realize that those are abundant, even when things are sucky, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, um, that those are accessible to everyone. And so that's what I really started digging in. And, you know, it, it, it parallels right there with behavioral science that whenever we're able to manipulate our outcomes, bias ourselves towards positive outcomes or manipulate our environment, just make it you know, more pleasurable to be in, that ultimately those have an upward spiral lift, right? Because we start to realize that life has a positive slant if we sort of move in that direction. And so that's why fun as a construct has really been so interesting to me at, you know, from the lens of, of scientists, because it really is this tool that everyone has access, you know, access to. Um, And we can use it at any given time, even for things that aren't that great, we can look at them mindfully and go, okay, so how in this instance could I potentially make it um, more pleasurable for me?
0: So which tools did not work anymore when you say it's tools didn't work anymore?
1: So besides yeah, primarily for me, it was gratitude journaling. You know, the more that I kind of tried to find um, things to be grateful for. Uh, and this work comes from Sonia uh, Lubomirsky out of UC Riverside. She's now empirically validated this, that folks that over-prescribe to, you know, to this, and because it's kind of, especially here in the States, I don't know about France, but has, you know, life coaches have kind of grabbed onto it and and um, accentuated what, you know, the, the true uh, intervention value is of gratitude. And so, um, you know, I kept trying to be like, okay, well, I want to be grateful for something and i wasn't really grateful at that time you know i had some really unfortunate events and processing those and mourning my brother's death were more important than going outside and and you know uh whimsically trying to find things to be grateful for and mm-hmm. so um that was one that was uh you know quite problematic and the other was you know, trying to now optimize to get myself back on the rails. So like trying to find things to be happy for. So in line with sort of gratitude as well, Um, you know, trying to savor things uh, without processing what was right in front of me uh, really did become problematic. So, you know, sort of lower level tools of mindfulness, you know, trying to savor my way out of melancholy just ended up being problematic because I still needed, I couldn't just Compartmentalize those feelings, and we now know that from the hedonic flexibility principle. Right, this comes out of Oxford, MIT, and Stanford. That when people try to limit their breadth of emotions, you know, by using these sort of lower level tools of saying, "Okay, well, I can will myself out of of things that um, you really shouldn't," yet because you should, you know, experience a broad breadth of emotion. That's when things become quite problematic because the brain needs to process. Uh, bad activities, you know, bad things. Um, And that's an unfortunate aspect of life, right? I mean, change is inevitable. We're going to lose loved ones. Some of us are going to lose our partners, you know, know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And um, turning a blind eye to that by overly using tools of positive psychology, despite, you know, negative valence and negative emotional states, again, now it has been empirically validated to, sh- you know, that we need that, you know, it's part of the human condition.
0: Yeah, so when you said it's, you know, either an upwards or a downward spiral, I mean, what if it can be neither? What if it's like a middle where you just stay in this mindful acceptance of whatever you're experiencing? I mean, is it necessary always to go one way or the other? Or can we just be in the middle somewhere?
1: No, you absolutely can be in the middle. So oftentimes that's a question I get all the time, right? For me, I do have a bias of wanting pleasurable states, right? Like I love to have fun with my children. I love to, um, uh, you know, engage in uh, so pro-social behavior with my friends. But uh, Susan Kane just wrote an amazing book called Bittersweet, um, where she talks about that very thing, that there's you know, depending on where you fall on the big five, there are plenty of folks that like to be in a neutral valent state, you know, where they're not necessarily happy or sad. And if that is where, what you're predisposed to, that's not necessarily um, bad. And there's some folks that like to be in a melancholy state, you know, think of, you know, (laughs) I'm not trying to trivialize it, but you know, like folks that enjoy goth music and things of that nature, Certainly you don't want to devoid yourself of pleasure because we know similar to folks that overemphasize um, happiness, you know, you overemphasize sadness and don't build, you know, broaden, build those emotions. You're going to run into similar problems. Um, But certainly if you have a predisposition to being sad, that's not necessarily bad either. Right. And so uh, absolutely, if you want to go down the middle, I think what is problematic is if that Um, you're flat all the time. So you tend to be apathic. Um, You're going to start to lose mirror neurons. You're going to lose the ability to be empathic. You're going to not understand why kindness is important. Um, So it would be problematic if you don't sort of deviate from that. But if that's your set point, you know, we talk about the hedonic set point and that's sort of, you know, where your comfort zone lies, then that's perfectly acceptable.
0: Well, I think what you so beautifully said is this, you know, neat, that you know we have to be happy that can put more stress in us than it actually lets us you know unfold life or even grow into you know whatever we meant to be or we want to grow into based also on the circumstances we're in i mean when you lost your brother or i lost my parents you know these are very challenging situations but they also shape you as a human being and so just this this need, okay, I need to have pleasure, I need to have happiness, that can certainly also put more pressure on yourself to skip over it, like you just mentioned, then really also savor the gifts in it. Because any loss is also certainly something that can teach us something. Like you said, uh, sometimes there is joy in the hardship, or you can find more joy in the hardship. And, and what did you mean with that, that, you know, there is a way to maybe be more uh, appreciative of the small joys that uh, present themselves or how did you see that?
1: Yeah. So um, in researching the book and also processing, you know, my, my own feelings about what had happened, um, I was impressed to find out that the folks that accept death and so not necessarily fear death, which is different. Again, you know, this, I want to make sure because semantics is important that I nuance, you know, similar to, valuing happiness and being concerned about happiness, this is um, the same distinction with death. So accepting that death is coming and and not necessarily um, worrying about the inevitability really allows us to um, be more in the moment with the time that we have, right? Because we realize that these experiences that we have are finite. And when we start to realize that a couple of things happen, and one of the most important is that When we index a whole host of experiences, so, you know, no matter what you like with regards to arousal and and valence, um, still indexing a bunch of different experiences through opportunities for wonder and awe and betterment, these get encoded into our brain as separate experiences rather than someone that kind of lives a habitual life right and through, you know, um, refined heuristics and things like that, where if you ask them what they did in a given month, they could kind of just give you a summary of their day. Um, when people index things and are appreciative that time is finite, we tend to hold these memories as an, as an index timeline, which allows us to look back and have this richer set of experiences that helps us build resilience. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it becomes particularly important as a tool of mindfulness, um, to you know, reiterate what you said, to be joyful in the things that we do have, appreciate what we do have, um, because you know, abundance is there, right? But at the end of the day, the one thing that isn't abundant is time. And so using time usefully is one of the best things that we can do.
0: Now, coming back to the fundamental word, fun and happiness, how would you describe both and what's the difference between them?
1: Yeah. So fun is an action orientation, right? And so fun is, uh, you know, again, to define it academically in in the simplest terms, it's anything that we derive pleasure from, right? So in clinical psychology, we would say it's anything on the positive side of valence, anything that we're going, hey, this is an enjoyable activity, right? Happiness, with regards to psychology, is something it, we describe it within the construct of subjective well-being, right? And so we've now uh, really pull it out with these numeric measures, you know, based on Likert scales, and that's unfortunate because what you know, and again, it's just the definition, right? But it requires introspection to say, hey, was I happy, you know, within this time period? Whether that's you know, longitudinal time period of 5 years or what you know was i happy yesterday and why that becomes problematic is whenever we sort of need to dissect whether or not we were happy all of a sudden we're becoming concerned with happiness so it's again i like using the metaphor of chasing a tiger by its tail right because as soon as we go looking for it all of a sudden that you know it, it it's kind of magically disappeared but when we start to live life, you know, the way in alignment with our identity and our values and, and, you know, where we want to go directionally, um, then happiness is generally a good lagging indicator of how we're living. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an overused word. And, you know, with my clients, I often hear them saying once, you know, we work on, okay, what do you would love to experience instead of anxiety? Oh, I just want to be happy. But happy is such a, wide step from how they are feeling, because you know, the way we define happiness is something like, wow, this is so amazing. And I'm, you know, just really having so much joy. Aren't there like way more nuances about happiness? I mean, can you just have a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning and the kids are quiet, it's a beautiful day, and it can be completely peaceful, equal happy? Yeah. And so that's what I've seen.
1: Um, I'm an organizational psychologist to make that clear. So, but in working with clinical psychologists that work with coaches, one of the, my favorite is Dr. Iris mouse out of, um, uh, out of Cal Berkeley. And she had put it to me this way. Like when you do have a, uh, you know, client or patient that comes in with that kind of conundrum, you need them to really define it themselves. Cause to your point oftentimes what they're doing is being prescribed what happiness is, right? And especially here in the Western world, it becomes quite problematic because a lot of it's influenced by marketing, right? Um, I think it's one that I'm immersing myself in now, it's not necessarily talked about in the book, but um, that I find quite fascinating is the way that collectivist cultures and individualist cultures experience happiness because happiness is really experienced as a group. know in collectivist cultures and here especially in the states you know we're really worried about individual happiness and so um to answer your question uh you know more with a western slant because that's what i'm more familiar with that is where you need to start like okay well let's first define happiness because probably half of your problem is that you don't know what happiness means to you right and it could mean six different things right you know when we look at a coaching paradigm Sometimes it could be just alleviating pain. Like I'm in so much either physical or emotional pain, I can't be happy. Okay, well, let's work at, you know, in those big boulders. To your point, it could be that someone's just lonely in in this particular period. And so they're trying to figure out, you know, what are all these things, you know, again, these tools of positive psych that I see on TikTok, and why aren't they working for me? Well, it's as simple as you just calling up that old friend, you know, that you become distanced from because of the pandemic or whatever the reason is and 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 just habituating you know that connection again and and that's going to lead to um, you feeling more fulfilled and so this ambiguous definition of happiness you know you're spot on that that becomes one of the biggest problems when someone's trying to quote unquote solve their you know their their happiness issue
0: Well, plus it makes them feel that they are constantly failing because their ability to get to that, what they see on Instagram as being happy or TikTok as being happy is never reachable for them. And so they just give up at some point. So yeah, I, I love what you said that it's really important to define it for yourself and maybe even put a different word. I mean, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be for you that happiness is your holy grail of the state of being. It could be something completely different. and. That yeah, science. I think
1: that's that's spot on. And I think, you know, again, boiling back to semantics and, and revisiting your earlier question, that's why I think fun as a construct is so much more interesting, right? Because fun allows us immediate wins, right? Like at any given time, you know, maybe you need to wait a couple hours or a couple of days, but you can take action towards making certain aspects of your life more pleasurable, and happiness is always a lagging indicator where you're looking at where you are today and where you want to be. And again, what we know from the science is that that starts to affect your identity because when you continually look at the gaps between you know here and now and, and your future state, uh, you're going to start to go, I am an unhappy person because by definition you are with the way that you're framing it, right? So if right. you can reframe it in a way that one, Happiness is somewhat an illusion, right? I mean, why happiness also is problematic is that to some degree it it re, you know it's this uh, collective hallucination that we have, right? Because it relies to some degree on your happenstance, right? We know that happiness is a construct that's based in comparing, right? So why is it that you know folks from lower e- economic um, areas can be much more happier than folks from Higher economic areas, right, and that's because they're comparing themselves to their peers, and that is a big component of happiness, right? It's why we know from uh, lottery studies that when people win, you know, have these huge windfalls, that yes, they they become a lot more excited and happier for about a year, but then they return to where they were because, you know, again, we start to compare ourselves once we adapt to our 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 new surroundings and, and new circumstances, and we also adapt. You know, a component of feeling pleasure um, is based in evolution, right? I mean, sex is enjoyable because we're meant to procreate high caloric food is enjoyable because food used to be scarce. Right. And so these things are meant to light us up for a little bit and then be fleeting because that's what they were meant to do to move us towards behaviors that would help our species survive. Um, we live in a much different world then, right? Like we haven't caught up to those. And so, um, defining what it is and being mindful of that, um, then becomes a lot more useful because you can say I have arrived and then you can start to practice savoring in that moment like I don't need more than this relationship with my friend or I don't need more than this close connection I have with my partner or I'm going to enjoy the journey of mastering a new sport or a new instrument or an, you know a, a new um, hobby because just being in that it, it is what makes me happy I mean it's a cliche but there's some truth in it right that Happiness really does live in the journey, but so often we're sold the destination, right? Like once we arrive, then we can check the box and tell everyone we're happy. That just, you can survey a billion people. That's just not reality. But for some reason, that's what we believe and it's problematic.
0: You know, I I think really uh, that in our society, the problem is also that we are making happiness more and more complicated and expensive. You know, there's just something about this oversaturation of what is possible and the instant gratification we all want and then you have your new watch or you have your you know fun cruise and in the end it's never really lasting because it's already on the top of so many other things that you just gave yourself as a pleasurable experience you know we go for a three-week hike on the Compostelle in in france and that's very simple it's very basic and I'm not really thinking about the destination. I'm really thinking about just this everyday, one step of a time when it brings so much happiness because it's so, yeah, just again, very basic. Do you think we need to go back a little bit to just really go to those, you know, maybe more uh, pleasurable senses that are, that are achievable and available that are not about that big thing that we are then posting on social media about? Yeah,
1: so there are a couple of things to unpack there, right? One, and this is, this isn't new, right? I think people just need a reminder is that we know, um, this has been proven empirically time and time again, that experience is better than things, right? And so, um, and the reason for that is one, um, it's usually a we proposition, not a be proposition, right? Although, you know, if you skew on, if you're an introvert, sometimes it is a me proposition, but, as you mentioned, once we have the thing, right, if if we're trying to find happiness through purchasing uh, goods, um, that ultimately, you know, through hedonic adaptation, it's going to lose the utility. Through experience, we know that um, we can savor that moment because it was never meant to, uh, you know, give us a lift. It was meant to experience. And so that's one thing. The other is unpacking social media a little bit. Um, And again, this gets into neuroscience and sort of at the edge of my academic understanding, but in interviewing um, several uh, neurologists for the book. uh, So let me clarify that we now know that dopamine isn't the pleasure-seeking neurotransmitter that we thought, right? It's, It's meant to excite us. We know that dopamine gets released when we anticipate uh, when we anticipate a pleasurable experience so that's why social media is so powerful right we're kind of waiting for what that next picture is we call it a variable reward in in um, in psychology and what's that's doing is limiting our ability to uh, access to oxytocin when we actually engage in pro-social behavior and so to say that you're getting one and not the other that's why I'm you know making this a little bit more verbose than it needs to be because I'm not trying to simplify neuroscience, but what we do know is that pleasure, um, that really lifts us up really requires both those neurochemicals. And that doesn't happen when we're getting, um, just access to our friend's history through these social channels. So we are tricked into believing it because we kind of get this little boost, you know, when we see these pictures and we feel like we're connected and like, oh, we're keeping up with these folks, but what we really need, um, you know, and what kind of, helps us feel like we're connected to something bigger than ourselves is true connection and so now they're just scratching the surface of like um you know it tends to be uh, real eye-to-eye contact so they're trying to see like this zoom meeting that we're having now is that a is that a better choice than kind of keeping up you know passively through social media but what we know is kind of the you know gold standard is face-to-face interaction right i mean that's why loneliness is an epidemic Um, coming out of the pandemic. And we know that, uh, at least from a correlative standpoint, that loneliness tends to have worse health outcomes than sitting and smoking. that's quite profound, right? And so when we're talking about what is important, building opportunities for connection through experience I think has been validated as one of the most important things that we can do. And generally those are pleasurable and fun, right? Like if you're not having fun with your friends, they tend not to be fun, you know, friends very long. So that's where I make the dotted line to why fun is important because fun tends to be the glue to continually do these things. And to your point, they don't have to be, you know, this grand episodic gesture at the end of the year where you're spending all your money at the end, quite the opposite. You want to make sure that it's sustainable and, um, You know, here, you know, in the U.S. and Canada, it's awful. We have to incentivize people to take, you know, we have some of the worst um, time off policies, you know, in in the globe uh, at two weeks as being an average. I think France is six. Right. Yeah. Um, And and we're not even taking them We're you know, corporations realize that this leads to better productivity. So they're not even doing it for benevolent causes. And they're literally having to incentivize people Um, and there's reasons for that. I mean, oftentimes we believe, you know, we still have this Puritan work ethic where we believe that if we're not living through a sense of duty and pain, that we're not leaving, you know, living a quote unquote spiritual life. But now we have the evidence to prove that that's killing us slowly. Right. And so anyways, I hope I answered your question.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, I want to just go quickly back to social media because I would even say that most of the people that I'm working with don't really have a dopamine release in regards to, you know, really getting this, it's more like self judgment that comes as an outcome. And so, you know, I have many young people that I work with that tell me that they are glued to it, but afterwards they feel really bad about themselves and unmotivated even to go with their dog walking or something like this, you know, a very simple experience. So how do you get people to get more motivated to have more fun, direct experiences on their own or with others?
1: Yeah. So, um, one of the interventions that I often, you know, use at the beginning of any engagement that I have, um, is to do a simple time audit, right? There's only 168 hours in our week. I use something that I created, you know, all of us tend to create simple four quadrant models and and I, I did. And, uh, so I call it the play model, um, and it's really just matching up effort with valence. You know, so what can you engage in um, you know, that, that brings you pleasure? And so you do the time audit and then you look at your activities in, in that given week and um, the acronym is play. So it stands for pleasing, living, agonizing and yielding. And the pleasing and living categories are the ones where you're operating in uh, positive valence. And so you would quickly identify that time on social media um, is in the yielding category. That's not really creating any pleasure for you, right? Because even Mm -hmm. by your own admission, your your patients' clients are admitting that it's not lighting them up, right? So what can we do as a replacement activity during this time that you're basically wasting? And so in that, you want to identify what are the moments of discomfort when you're going through your social media feed, right? For some folks, it's going to be, you know, I really want to connect with these friends and um, I just have lost those social graces during the pandemic. So it's as simple as, okay, well, identify two or three people you can connect with. If two of them aren't ready yet either, then that's fine, you know, but find someone so that you can start to engage in pro-social behavior. If, you know, the fear of missing out, um, you know, this comparison paradox that we've been talking about is it, and it's not necessarily loneliness, what can you do? to identify one of the things that was bringing you discomfort while you were and actually move yourself towards that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the main thing about that, again, you know, why happiness is problematic is that we do compare. And when you have this fire hose of comparison coming at you, you know, where you can see a hundred different things that you're not doing, then all of a sudden your brain has this huge amount of cognitive load that it has to, to sift through, right? Like here, are all these things that my friends are doing, and oftentimes we don't realize that that's a curated life of someone that's probably more miserable than you are, right? I mean, we know that again empirically because we know most people that over post are folks that have high affiliation needs and are likely depressed themselves, right? Um, you know, as a generalization, I'm not throwing that you know at everyone, but. And I certainly like social media because I've learned I've learned how to tame it. And I think it's a great tool to share and to stay connected. But I limit myself. Right. And so um, those are two helpful strategies that I found, you know, is, you know, or or really three. Right. What is the replacement activity? Because we know that, you know, I I think it's fair to say that it's for a lot of us, it's a budding addiction. Right. It's not a true addiction, but certainly a budding addiction and the best way to mitigate addiction is to find a replacement behavior, right? And so that leads to the other two, two of the best replacement behaviors that will mitigate the discomfort that you had um, through engaging in social media too much is one connecting with the folks that you wanted to see in the first place and creating real world memories or moving yourself towards one of those activities that's you know causing you discomfort because you know what we call FOMO, right? The fear of missing out.
0: I completely agree. And I think it's discipline that gets us there. And, uh, and it's probably, you know, something we really have to also feel the pain, because we're not so aware of the pain that we are gaining from engaging in those things, just like in the good old days, watching too much TV, it was just also something that eventually you felt a little yucky afterwards, because you haven't really engaged in life, you have just uh, engaged in the screen. And uh, for me, that's a similarity but now it's certainly more on social media and it feels more as if we are connecting we are not really connecting as you just pointed out
1: yeah and if you can't get over the friction you know some people um you know kind of get stuck i don't know if i want to do a one week time audit even though it ends up being a lot easier than most people feel i mean now um android and i um iphone's have the ability for you to quickly look at how much time you're consuming apps. So that's usually a great gateway into actually doing the time audit. Like, wait, I was on Instagram 12 hours this week. (laughs) The data doesn't lie, right?
0: (laughs) Well, one of the questions I had for you was also about the misconceptions around happiness. So what are those misconceptions? We may have covered already some, but what are those that you haven't talked about?
1: Yeah, I mean, primarily that, it's, um, you know, something to be overly concerned with, right? And so uh, we have touched on most of them and that is that um, it does become problematic, that it is this leading indicator um, and oftentimes requires introspection. So it's not necessarily an in the moment emotion. You know, we have this broad breadth of emotions, but that over being overly concerned about it is going to, you um, you know, lead to negative outcomes. And so, uh, you know, I think that is the main misconception. Is it this thing that I should optimize for? And ultimately, if um, having more pleasure in your life, inviting more delight and joy, there's better avenues for doing that rather than um, being concerned about, you know, some future state and that taking action, um, you know, in the moment and being more mindful of the activities that you engage in are a lot better way to feel like you're living a fulfilled life um because again the way that we built this construct of happiness and how problematic it is
0: now coming back to the beginning where you talked about how you got on this journey what habits have changed for you what do you think like personally is now what you do differently or better than before
1: yeah so i look at um from time to time I do that time audit and I try to one, limit the amount of time for introspection, right? So we know, and I know that your um, specialty is an anxiety, right, like one of the most useful tools for someone that has that slant, which I've already confessed I do, um, is to sort of time box the amount of time you're, you're willing to do that, right? Because we know that if you eliminate it altogether, it's gonna manifest in your subconscious in very strange ways, right? And so the same can be done for folks that want to be happy and, and, and spend a little bit of time, you know, being mindful about how that might look, but, you know, finding the amount of time that works for you in any given week and then capping yourself so that you're not kind of lost in your own, uh, perseveration with regards to your emotional state. For me, what I've done is, uh, set aside some time on Sunday to be more pragmatic about how I'm going to spend my time in any given week. Um, and then I have some checks and balances of uh, so I use various apps um, that do tell me like, hey, you spent more time than you had allocated you know on this particular activity. and then I'll find ways to, um, you know, to switch out those activities for things that are more pleasurable. And then I have a set of tools that I call saver. Um, and so the S stands for uh, story editing. And so oftentimes if I find myself, sort of wallowing in a particular activity, I'll try and figure out how I can reframe it so that you know it sort of leads me in a better direction. A stands for activity bundling. So if there's something that I don't necessarily enjoy, like let's say you know cleaning my bathroom, I'll try and figure out is there something that I can add on to it that kind of increases the pleasure of that activity. So oftentimes for me, it's listening to a podcast. Variable hedonics, um, you know, we've, we've talked about quite a bit, and that is how can I vary up activities? So I'm, you know, this work is based with uh, Barbara Fredrickson, you know, how can I broaden and build that those breadths of activities? And then O stands for options. And that is oftentimes one of the, the easiest things to do, but something that a lot I find that a lot of folks don't because it requires an extra step. And that is, if I do kind of feel stuck, How can I develop a set of options that allows me to have better choices, you know, in in any given circumstance? And oftentimes it's just asking yourself that simple question, is there another way to do that? So an anecdote that I often bring up, especially, you know, when I'm on podcasts that have a parenting slant is my wife and I um, found that bathing our young children was this truly agonizing activity because for whatever reason, they didn't like us to do it. And my wife and I always tried to pawn it off on the other person because it just wasn't that fun and so we found um you know to make a long story short we found that uh we didn't you know because we we couldn't afford nor did we need a nanny but we were able to bring in someone that could babysit them just a few hours out of the week during that bath time experience bathe them and that gave us an opportunity to reconnect as partners during that time so it was just a subtle shift of how we were spending four hours. Well, now our kids had amazing time, you know, with this babysitter during bath time because she's young and has more vitality than us. And now my wife and I have a couple of date nights a week. So we're able to reconnect as partners and then come back to our children, you know, much better people. Um, and then the last one is uh, reminiscing. And we've talked about that as well. You know, when I have some downtime, instead of uh, getting myself on social media, I'll reminisce about you know, um, some fun time have pictures, you know, instead of Facebook's algorithm, you know, sort of telling me what I should remember, you know, I have uh, various containers of memories that I want to remember. And so I'll pick it up, you know, so again, flexing that agency and autonomy so that I'm in control of what I remember because I I know what I like. (laughs) And oftentimes those are great cues, right? They create this sort of mechanism like, hey, you know, like here's another picture of my best friend. you know, like I haven't talked to Micah for a while, you know, after reminiscing and that will, um, you know, create the trigger to reach out to him. And, um, you know, so again, that upward spiral, right? of pleasurable and fun activities.
0: I love that you ask someone else to base the children. And said, okay, this is great because now we have more date night rather than think, oh, we are failing, we have to do this better, we have to learn. And I mean, you just accepted that you're not the best bathers and that someone else can do it better. And it didn't seem to be something that you were having a hard time with. I mean, once you find a solution.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing, especially for adults, right, that becomes the hardest part of this transition to finding more pleasurable activities that so many of us feel this sense of duty right whether it's relinquishing friendships of convenience right because that's just what we do or something intimate like bathing our children like why is it okay for rich people that can afford a nanny to allow them to do some of these more intimate things but for us um you know, it's somehow hard because it's a bit unorthodox to just hire someone to do that activity and challenging those assumptions through reframing. Um, You know, that becomes difficult because change is always hard and we become, you know, like neuroplasticity is more difficult as we age, right? You know, like this is how we do it, so this is how we do it. Um, But making, challenging those assumptions are some of the best ways to sort of get out of things that um, really can be agonizing, you know, and, you know, so
0: thanks for that. I do. No, I, no, I, I, I'm, I'm inspired. Uh, <laughs> last question: People, as you said before, think work is holy and you cannot really cut into it. You have to pay the bills. You have to, yada yadi. So how do you get people if you do your, you know, your time uh, allocation overview and they work twelve hours a day? how do you get them to work less or get them to find more pleasure in their lives if work is their big excuse?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that I think is important, uh, again, this, this is research that comes out of Stanford and Harvard, and that is that when you're not living a fulfilling life, so when you feel like your life is full of drudgery, you tend not to produce as much. So the folks that where they value work in this sort of Puritan work ethic, one of the easiest ways to get them over the hump is a simple math equation, right? So if you're fi- if you're feeling fulfilled and you're not feeling burnt out, then you can contribute, let's say, two amounts of productivity per every hour, right? But if you're worn out and you're in, in your working 50 to 60 hours a week, then let's say 55, right? You're only able to produce one unit of output per week, right? So, would you rather be the person working thirty hours a week producing two units of work, or working fifty-five hours and and producing only one, where you're actually producing more output of productivity, you know, in, in the first um, example? And this has been empirically validated over and over again. Again, it's why U.S. corporations are insisting people take vacation now, even though we've been so conditioned not to do it, right? Mm. And Oftentimes it takes me, you know, pointing them to these studies, but hands down again and again, folks that feel like they're living a more fulfilled life are also more productive at work. And so that usually gets them over the hump. Right. But behavior change is hard. Right. So um, oftentimes what I'll say, and this work comes out of, from Dr. Cassie Holmes out of uh, UCLA, she found this sort of Goldilocks spot, right? Like figure out two hours out of your 24 a day that you can kind of take off, you know, take for yourself, take off the table for yourself. Um, and if, if you can't do that, or if you can't even find one a day, then you need to start questioning why that is, right? Because even doctors, physicians, folks, you know, all, all sorts of professions, consultants, things of that nature that are, you know, sort of bound um, by long hours, Um, Can still find an hour or two out of their day. And you find time and time again when people do these time audits that they're not even finding one or two hours out of their week. And oftentimes that, you know, slowly adding in one hour a week, you know, so that they're at least enjoying like, you know, four to seven hours a week is kind of the baby step into that. But
0: um, so. Well, I think that's very well said. But the problem is also that they often don't know what to do with themselves. So even if they do not you know work 12 hours a day i think just having like you have uh, given many tools uh, if they have already something that they feel like okay i can replace the work time with something simple because i often hear well i tried meditating but that didn't work because their mind is racing like crazy so there are other things to find pleasure or peace than meditation and just making it simple and having something already waiting for you to you know, get used to it and have a new habit of those two hours that bring you fun and pleasure. That's just also something that people have to gradually grow into. It's not a light switch that you know we can now work less and all of a sudden feel so much happier. I'm sure it just takes a little bit.
1: Yeah, and there are two things to unpack there because uh, I like meditating, but it's similar to gratitude. I actually write about it in the book where I was using a muse because again, I'm kind of a quantified geek and what really annoyed me about the Muse and like Sam Harris, I've now moved on to Sam Harris's uh, Waking Up app, um, and he finally just relinquished this feature. But like all of these apps, you know, they're they're meant to help you meditate, but oftentimes the mechanisms behind them are still built by product people, right? Exactly. So the Muse kept saying, Hey, you meditated great this week. Why don't you add another hour next week? Like (laughs) never, (laughs) not what I want to do, you know? And so, um, people can get burnt out by things that are supposed to make them feel better. Right. And so, um, and and what's important to unpack there is all of these tools, right. That can be helpful. All still have a U shaped curve, right? Mm -hmm. So you might be on the six Sigma where this isn't right for you. That doesn't mean give up. It just means that this isn't the meditation isn't for you. There's going to be something out there yes. that's, that's going to lift you up. And so that's important to know that, you know, if one intervention hasn't worked for you, you just move on. It's not, you didn't fail. You know, mm-hmm. you used that terminology earlier. Um, and that's why a growth mindset is so important when you're kind of moving through this, right? Is realizing that it's okay. Failure is part of the process. The second thing I think that's important, you know, in conjunction with what I, what I already shared, that's again, kind of paradoxical is that figuring out whatever that activity for you is. And oftentimes what I'll ask folks to do is look back at like what they enjoyed when they did have more free time. So oftentimes, you know, the one that stands out, it's not for me, but it's a true standout, especially for women is dancing. And so like, oh, but I just don't have the energy to dance. And again, it's one of those things where if you make time for it, yes, you might be a little bit more tired when you get home, but you're gonna sleep better. And nine times out of 10, engaging in an activity that lights you up, gives you more vitality. And it usually takes a couple of weeks, you know, so that's the unfortunate thing. Like you try it for a week and mainly just because of muscle memory and things of that nature and just getting used to, you know, your new routine, it will make you feel like, okay, well, I like this, but I just don't have the energy for it. But usually about week three, you'll realize, wow, I have more energy than I've ever had because that type of activity redistributes you know positive neurochemicals and way better than you know binge watching netflix again for you know another month and so again that's another thing that's been empirically validated but um often is hard for folks to put into practice because it you know just like you know some of these pharmaceutical interventions we don't know why it is but it takes a couple of weeks for the body to adapt to these you know these elements that kind of change your neurochemistry and so well,
0: i'm uh, sure that's uh By design, pretty smart, because if everything would go right away and quickly, we probably would kill ourselves with our thoughts. So it's good that everything takes a little bit longer. Now, how can people find your book and find out more about you?
1: Uh, Thanks for that opportunity. Yeah. So the book's available for pre-sale now. So even though it's not coming out until January 3rd, wherever you buy books, um, you can purchase it. And uh, I write about the science of fun at my website, michaelrucker.com.
0: And the book is called? Uh, the fun habit. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. This was fantastic. So much information to unpack. I mean, I have to watch this several times to get it all in. (laughs) I really appreciate the time that you take. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. You're welcome.